Welcome back, viewers and listeners, to a brand new episode of the Gradient Podcast. I'm one-third of your host, Arman. I'm one-third of your host, Jaden. And I'm one-third of your host, Evan. Considering the soon-to-be election of the United States of America, this episode of the Gradient Podcast is a two-part episode that is unlike our previous episodes. Just as Armand said, this time we're talking about the election, and we are so excited to bring to you a great list of guests and experts to help inform you, the teens, and you, the voters, about how this election process works. So, in our next two episodes, you are going to see a variety of individuals of, with varying perspectives on the upcoming election and voting in general. It's going to be a very, very exciting time for the Gradient Podcast. That being said, these two new episodes of the Gradient Podcast will not have a segment with just the three members of the podcast. We'll jump straight into our interviews. Exactly as Armand said, and we are so excited to bring to you our first guest of this great list of guests, Sari Kaufman. Next up, we are so happy to have freshman at Yale University, first-time voter, founder for the My Vote Project, and lacrosse fanatic, Mrs. Sari Kaufman. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you guys for having me on your podcast. We'd love to have you. So this upcoming election, it's a big year for a lot of teens. It's a big election, you know, two very different candidates that are going to be, you know, running in this election. Teens have a lot of pressure on them, you know, to make the right decision. So we've actually compiled a list of questions that we got from our viewers who were just everyday teens who had some, you know, while simplistic, extremely important questions that they want answered. So the first question that I think a lot of teens have is, why does my vote matter? Yeah, well, you know, right now, like you said, everyone's paying attention to the presidential election. Should we vote for Biden or should we vote for Trump? But what really matters is the elections that are down the ballot. So when you're looking at sheriff, when you're looking at state attorney, and a lot of times people don't have the time to go out and vote, but then also be educated on all those candidates, not just the presidential candidates. So we developed myvoteproject.com, where you can just put your zip code in the website, and then an overview, nonpartisan overview of the candidates come up. So you can quickly learn about which state attorneys are running, uh, which sheriffs are running, school board, etc. Considering yours and many others first time voting, we'd see the importance of having political conversation and discourse both on a national and local level. Though we are faced with the fact that many teens are unmotivated to speak about politics because they don't feel like they have an important role considering how politics is not very youth-centered. What ways can we empower youth and sort of make them more motivated to have these uncomfortable conversations about politics that they so need to? Yeah, well, I think, you know, just looking at social media, a lot of more young people are talking about politics. And I think a lot of times as young people, we look as, at politics as an adult problem. It's abstract. It doesn't affect us. But People have to think, even if you think locally, um, you know, do you ride the bike to school during the day? Do you use your sidewalk? You know, how are you getting to and from places and who's paying for that? Even though we might not have money right now, you know, the things that our city leaders decide to build and the infrastructure they have affect us every single day. So I think if we're able to show young people a direct impact of a politician's choice, uh, then people will be more motivated. When we're talking about these you know, maybe economic policies that seem a little complicated. And when we're not having a job, I, you know, some teens don't. It seems a little more abstract and harder for us to care about it. Uh, so that's why I think, you know, just having discussions about exactly what politicians are doing that affect young people every single day 
um, I think that's how we're going to be able to get young people more motivated about politics. And we completely agree that it is extremely important that all teens and all young people just in general do take the time to vote. But a lot of times issues that teens may face is they simply just don't know where their polling place is. So what resources are available for these voters to figure out where their polling place is? Or what resources are available for them to figure out what is the best way to vote for them? Yeah, well, you know, statistics show that if you have a voting plan, which sounds a little dumb, but it's true. If you think about exactly how am I going to vote? How am I going to research my candidates? Where am I going to get those resources? Uh, you're way more likely to actual, actually vote when it comes to time to voting. Uh, so, you know, of course, I'm going to plug in myvoteproject.com where you can easily search the candidates who are on your ballot um, so you don't have to do all that research beforehand, um, which takes a long time. So that's one resource. And then just going to your supervisor of elections website, you can easily look up your polling place. And then you can also, if you do a mail-in ballot, you can see if your ballot's counted, right? Like all over the country right now, ballots are being rejected and some people don't even know their ballots rejected. Um, so I know at least in Broward County, you can go to the Broward Supervisor of Elections website and then easily see if your ballot was counted or rejected and how to figure that out. So I wanted to ask a, a quick follow-up question. So you um, developed the My Vote Project when you were still in high school um, before you could legally vote. But now that this is your uh, first uh, election, um, has that has the My Vote Project like has has your work on that changed your perspective on uh, on voting at, at all? Yeah, well, I think when I first came up with the idea, it was a very idealistic idea. Oh, I don't know if it can actually happen. Um, and then honestly, when coronavirus hit and we had all these young people at home looking for something to do and get involved with in their communities, that's when I decided to start reaching out to these young people. Um, and asking if they would help volunteer with my vote. And now we have over 300 high school volunteers. Most of them cannot vote. Uh, so it's interesting to see their perspective and their willingness to still help with a project that they can't use. Um, and now that I can actually use it, it just shows like before it kind of seemed like, yeah, you know, I think it will help. But then when I was able to actually use what I developed to fill out my own ballot, uh, you know, I saw the effectiveness of it and um, really just, you know, I talk to young people a lot and a lot of times there's so many obstacles to like be able to build something yourself. Um, and it just seems like, oh, it's too hard, too difficult. I don't know where to start. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's really important if you can just like take one step. I would have no idea that we would have 300 volunteers today. Um, but it was just like reaching out to some people and it slowly spread. So I think having the willingness as a young person to get your feet wet to start a project and see where it goes is important. So if I am a young person who is interested in voting, but I'm not particularly fond of either candidate on the uh, on the ballot, what should my course of action be? Yeah, well, you know, the, yes, we do have a two party system. So a lot of times we have two candidates and we don't feel like one of them actually represents us. And that's totally understandable, but I don't think it's understandable when people say that and then don't vote. Because the truth is one of those candidates is going to get elected. So even if you're saying, okay, well, they're both bad, choose the, choose the one that's least worse because they're still going to be representing you, one of them is. So you'd rather have the least worst candidate represent you than have no opinion at all. And then a candidate that could be significantly you know, detrimental to you compared to the other one 
um, you know, obviously you want to be part of that decision. So don't don't have that excuse. You know, don't don't be apathetic just because they don't completely represent you. It's going to be difficult to find a candidate that completely represents your beliefs. Especially now, more than ever in current America, we see politicians with expressive personalities who express their policies in ways that have them do it at the expense of moral character. And considering how big these role models are on much of youth in America, how do you suggest we're able to maintain a sense of civility when having these political discussions and discourse, especially since some of our politicians don't? Yeah, well, that's a good question. And, you know, I think a lot of times people put emphasis on like Generation Z and what they can do when they become older um, or like what impact the generation is, is going to eventually have. But I think that right now when we're in this hyper-partisanship world and, you know, there's very little discourse between like the older generations and especially our role models as politicians, um, I think it's up to us as Generation Z to start that discourse. So just because the politicians right now might not be civil and might not be willing to discuss uh, topics with each other because it's so partisan. Uh, I think it takes, again, I think, it, unfortunately, uh, young people should have the responsibility to start now and not wait until later, but start now and having that discussion, opening it up. Because um, I think it's up to us. It, you know, older, old people don't really change their habits. Um, so if they're not being open to discussion now, it's not going to change in a couple of years. Uh, so I think it's up to us. And just to add to that, <clears throat> on social media, I've seen a lot like, you know, among young people, oh, well, if Trump wins or if Biden wins, like I can't talk, if you vote for one of them, I can't talk to you. Like I'm just dropping you as a friend. And I understand the candidates have completely contrasting views. And yes, some of them are detrimental to groups, but it really, I personally think that we need to make sure that we're having a conversation no matter what. So for someone to just post on social media that they can't be friends with someone else, um, you know, that's going to cause a lot of issues down the road if we're not being willing to open up to other ideas. Um, so, you know, that's just something to think about uh, before you post something on social media, like try to get other views. Um, don't just look at the, the same views that you always do and have confirmation bias. Now, I want to have a quick follow-up. You talk about the importance of having conversation in the current political climate, and that goes alongside with uh, your development of the My Vote Project. Uh, can you walk us through that experience of how you've decided to uh, create such an organization and what suggestions you have for other people who uh, want to create similar projects in their local areas to uh, ma make the youth more informed and make everyone more informed generally? Yeah, of course. So. Um I was a sophomore at Stoneman Douglas in Parkland uh, when the shooting happened. So afterwards, I saw how important politics was and especially local politics, because I saw that, you know, there were some failures that happened on the local and state level um, by politicians. And if that didn't happen, then not necessarily the shooting could have been stopped, but somehow maybe it could have been prevented. Of course, we don't know, but um, I, I clearly saw how politics directly impacted my life. So after that, I helped plan the Parkland March for Our Lives and registered thousands of people. But as I, as I was registering people, you know, we were saying, let's hold these politicians accountable. But then when I was registering people, they didn't know who was on their ballot. So it's like, how can we hold all these t politicians accountable? But we don't even know. We're just guessing the first name on the ballot because we don't even know who they are. 
Um, so I found that like really ridiculous. Like how could you be asking for something if, if you don't even know what you're asking for? Um, so I actually got connected through my debate teacher to a Duke professor and he's a game theorist. So he was thinking about the idea of voter engagement and voter education, you know, definitely differently than like most politicians would think about it. Um, so we came up together with the idea of my vote project, which is super simple, but it's it's not that popular. Um, where you know someone can just type in their zip code, and then candidates on all levels will populate with simple overview of who they are, what articles they've been in, if they've been in scandals, their social media. So easily you can basically just have a digital voter guide on any candidate. Um, two years ago, it was like complete abstract idea. Like I had. I was very doubtful that it actually happened. Um, and then fast forward in January, we started thinking, okay, how can we actually make this a reality for the 2020 election? And that's when, uh, because of coronavirus, you know, so many young people were at home and we were able to get connected to young people. Um, and soon we grow, grew our volunteers to over 300, like I said before, um, and we are having them research these candidates. Um, because, you know, the task of covering so many different candidates on the ballot is extremely difficult. So we have a standardized way we do the research to stay nonpartisan. Um, and that's how we're researching now over 2000 candidates in states, including Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Virginia, Washington, New York, and a couple others. Um, and then we have an aspect where we're working with Duke policy students on listing policies in a digestible manner so people can easily understand, okay, how's healthcare affecting me? How's tax policy affecting me? Um, so that's the gist of my vote and how it was developed. And I think the other question that was a huge piece of that is, you know, how can other young people do this? And I think a lot of times adults question young people and will kind of be condescending to them like, oh, you know, a young person could have this great idea, but adults like, yeah, yeah, okay, it's a good idea, but you know, I don't think it's realistic. And I think, unfortunately, I think it's really up to the young person to say, no, like, I believe in my idea and I'm going to do my idea, even if you don't believe in it or not. And young people need to know that they can develop these ideas. Like you guys, you're creating a podcast. I'm sure some of your parents are probably like, yeah, okay, like, uh-huh, sure, go create your podcast. Let's see where it goes. But now you're on all these different platforms. So I think like just between the four of us, um, just like being willing to have the cojones to like go against your parents and adults and like actually create what you want to create. Um, yeah. Thank you. So another question that we have, you know, when it comes to creating this discourse is what if your parents and friends want to vote for a candidate that you don't necessarily believe in and they are really persistent and how do you go about having a discussion with them about, you know, maybe considering a different candidate or just having a discussion in general just to talk about why they like their certain candidate? Yeah, well, that's a good question. In my family, it's pretty split. Like, so I have two older brothers. One of them is Republican, one of them is Democrat, and their parents are kind of split. So our dinner conversations get a little crazy when we talk about politics. And I'm always navigating, well, like, how can I have healthy discourse with my brother when he's Republican and I'm like, well, I'm nonpartisan, but in my personal view, I'm Democrat. So like, how can you have that conversation? And what we've learned kind of together, like we're both willing to you know, talk openly and have a civil discussion is um, like not writing. I'm not going to actually like write down, but like just literally list. OK, well, these are my values 
and then see what their values are. And if you can, you know, a lot of times, like, especially young people, their social values might be in one place, but then maybe like economically, their values are in a different place. Um, so I was a debater. So like weighing the different values against each other and then like coming up with the best candidate, that seems so like logical and, and not fun in the whole process. But honestly, I think like ha a big part of civil discourse is if you're able to take the emotion out of it and just talk about like what you actually care about, what the other person actually cares about, compare it and then find the best choice. You know, like I said, just because they're Democrat, just because they're Republican, doesn't necessarily mean that they represent every single Republican or Democratic view. Uh, so for people being willing to like switch, like if you're a Democrat being willing to vote for Republican and vice versa, um, again, like top down, it's like no way there's Democrats and Republicans are so different. But when you go into the local races, a lot of times like Republicans are way more moderate and then they fit more like of the moderate Democrats. And then you have Democrats that are super liberal and then they don't fit that like moderate Democrat and vice versa on the other side. So I think just like being willing to research who your candidates are and then decide that way. And like, again, listing what you care about, what the other person cares about and having a discussion. Um, like you're just trying to make the best choice, so. Just to quickly add on to that, uh, not, not, not as much of a follow-up, but more of like a, an additional statement to that. When you're having these kind of comparative value, uh, like times where you're just comparing your, your political values with someone else, it's important, especially when you're talking about policies that have such uh, controversial undertones, uh, especially now with how intense and extreme uh, the opposing like political parties are, it's important to maintain that sense of civility to have a progressive conversation. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think a lot of times we like fixate on one issue. Um, and then like, if we really break down that issue you know, you can see where candidates lie. And like a lot of times it's not even that different. It's just in media, social media, especially, we try to like hold on to the fringes because that's what gets the most attention. Um, so I think that it, like, I feel like people view politics as like super extreme sometimes because that's, you know, in order to get attention, you wanna be extreme. But if you really like narrow it down, it's, it's way more moderate than we think. I wanted to um, quickly follow up on something that you mentioned earlier uh, with the goal of the My Vote project. We talked about how um, it, it was important for to uh, make sure that candidates keep their promises. So, what can voters do to ensure the integrity of uh, who they vote for? Yeah, well, um, that's actually you know a great thing to bring up because after the election, My Vote project isn't going to go away. Our whole thing is hold politicians accountable on both sides. So what we're going to start doing is having town halls soon after the election and saying, okay, well, on your campaign website, you promised this, this, and this. Now, like, let's have this town hall. Let's have people ask these questions and see if you actually completed these promises. Because uh, again, a lot of candidates will campaign on specific promises. And yes, of course, sometimes they won't have the political capital once they get into office to be able to do those promises, which is understandable. But when you have, you know, you see it in like some districts where candidates purposely campaign on one issue that they don't believe in, but they do a fake promise. And then when they're in office, they could do com something completely different. Um, so again, holding politicians accountable after the election. And so many people are focusing on November 3rd, of course, it's like the most important election, but I think it's also important to focus after and for us to not lose this political engagement. Um, 
because yeah, it totally matters. And if your candidates win, that's amazing. But even if it's if it was your candidate, you have to make sure that they follow up on what they promised you. You can't just be like, oh yeah, they won. Like I'm good. My party won. I'm just gonna go chill and like watch Netflix again. Like you got to stay in the political process. So one final question for you here. You've given a lot of great advice to teen voters and, you know, young voters in general about, you know, how to choose a good candidate, what to look for and how to vote. So what is one final bit of advice and one final takeaway that you want to make sure that these teen voters can get out of this? Yeah, well, teen voters, if you haven't voted yet, please vote. Um, just go in person. That's one thing. Make sure you're, all your friends vote as well. The other thing, though, is I'm all about voter education. So, of course, please, when you're going to vote, don't just vote for the president. Please vote for down the ballot, because if you want to see exactly how politics affects your lives and uh, where it does, it's always at the local and state level. Very little will uh, federal policy directly impact your life like the day after they pass it, but state and local do. So please pay attention to state and local. And of course, I'm going to plug my website. Use myvoteproject.com if you're in any of the states I listed before, so you can research those candidates easily. Um, but yeah, definitely encourage you to vote, obviously, but I have a feeling you're going to vote because it's important and you know that. But make sure you're voting down the ballot as well. So, Sari, thank you so much for coming on. And, you know, thank you for all the work you're doing to educate and inspire teens to become these future leaders and make the right decisions when it comes to, you know, politics and how it impacts their lives. So is there anything else you'd like to say to the people watching the Gradient podcast? Uh, thank you guys for watching this. Like for you to even watch it means that you're politically engaged. Um, and yeah, thank you to the Gradient Podcast for having me and yes, and uh, putting my vote out there. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. A quick round of applause for Sarah Kaufman. We're so happy that we got the opportunity to speak to her so she could tell us a little bit how, about how it's like being a teen voter, choosing a candidate, and what you need to know going, going to vote. Our next guest is Dr. Rachel Cobb, who will show us how to properly and effectively choose your candidate and decide who you'd like to vote for, not just for the president of the United States, but on local and state elections as well. Take it away. Joining us now, we have uh, Chair and Associate Professor of Government at Suffolk University, uh, board member for Mass Vote. I vote and the Boston Election Advisory Committee and a former pianist and avid music lover, uh, Dr. Rachel Cobb. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? I think we're all doing uh, fantastic and we are uh, very appreciative to have you on our podcast. So I'm going to go ahead and ask our first question. So um, not just for teens, but for all new voters, um, voting can be very stressful. Uh, you have so much pressure on you to make the right decision and pick the right candidate for you. So what advice would you give to these voters who are voting for the first time uh, in this election? Well, advice, about, so advice about, about how to vote uh, and advice about who to vote for. So on the how to vote, which is actually a bit more mechanical and a little bit easier in some ways, um, the main thing is actually you can ahead of time look up the ballot. Um, usually in a Secretary of State's website, you can find the ballot and review it and see all of the offices. And it may surprise, especially first-time voters, to see 
that not only are you voting for president, which I think most of us know is happening this year, but there's, um, and we probably, we might know that there are also federal elections, but there are also some local offices that we're voting for and maybe some referenda questions and maybe some very local issues. So getting a chance to review that ballot ahead of time is a really important thing about thinking about how to vote. But um, so then the next thing is, finding out how do you fill out the ballot? What is the mechanical device that you need? Do you need a pen? Do you, do you use a touch screen? Um, what are the options that you have? Um, and then depending on the method of voting that you're deciding to do, if you're voting at a location, at an early voting location, or you're going to vote on election day, how are you going to get there? Um, what what do you think the line might look like? So those are questions to ask. And then to have a real plan ahead of time to have time in your day and, uh, and know exactly what needs to happen. So this is one of those cases where planning is really super important, more so than I would say any other year because of the pandemic. The planning piece is, is a super important thing. And I say this uh, warmly as the mother of two teenagers and also a three-year-old, um, planning is not as easy for this particular, for young people as it is for older people, mostly because older people have probably done it a bunch of times. And so thinking about how to plan, you know what to plan for, <laughs> right? But if it's your first time voting, thinking through all of the different steps in it. I mean, so many people in our world say like, oh, voting's easy, but it is, as you said, it is actually quite challenging. And especially if it's your first time, you don't wanna make a mistake, you don't wanna mess up. Um, so this is one of those times like actually setting aside a time to side some time to really think through how to do it is super important. And, and um, yeah. I think today what we see is that you talk, talked about these long lines and a lot of people, what we see you know, from the news and the media is that there are these long lines to vote, which I think is very inspiring. But a lot of people, and I would warmly say, specifically teens, may not want to wait in these long lines and may not really be interested in waiting there to vote for so long. So for the, these people who are discouraged from voting from these lines and just the wait time and the hassle, what would you say to them? Well, you have options. And that option is you can vote by mail, and you can also uh, put it in a Dropbox if you know where the Dropbox location is. Um, the voting by mail, the one thing I would stress is, and again, this goes back to planning, that's the kind of thing that you should do early. The reason for doing it early is not only do you want that really important postmark by whatever the date is that your state requires it, but the other thing is, should you make an error on your ballot, you have the opportunity to do a redo. But that's only if there's enough time to do that. So with eight days left, I would say, you know, like put it in the mail today or tomorrow, i.e. the election right now, as we are, are taping this, is, is a week away. That's about as much time as I'd give. And after that, I'd put it in a Dropbox. You spoke yeah. earlier about the yeah. importance of uh, doing research on the candidates beforehand and er as early as possible, uh, especially considering the pandemic that we're faced with today. 
how early do you think it's important for teens specifically to look into the candidates they want to be their representatives before they actually go out and vote? Well, this is one of those things like, the, again, the earlier the better on that one, because there are a lot of items on the ballot. And so th there, um, I mean, if you decide that you are a member of a political party and you just want to vote all for all of the Democrats or for all of the Republicans, then it's pretty easy. And in fact, one of the things that we talk about in political science is that party is kind of a shortcut for people. And that's not a bad thing. If you believe in the, uh, the, the platform of a particular political party, then parties are actually giving you a gift of saying, look, if you like what we're doing, then vote for all of the candidates that we have on our team. So that's a pretty, so, so that makes it easier. Um, but if you wanna think through who these people are and get to know them, then I would think that you, you know, maybe it, depending on how much you wanna get to know them, then you really have to do some research. And that research is actually not as necessarily as easy to locate. I mean, you might be able to find a couple of key issue positions, but if you wanna dig deeper, really finding out about that candidate can be a bit tougher. So as a part of the younger generation, you know, researching candidates is something we hear very often. We hear that it is very important. It's something that we should do. But what it, to a lot of the younger generation, what exactly does that mean? And what, yeah, what exactly does that mean? And what exactly should you look into when trying to research a candidate? Well, I think actually you should start before you look at candidates, actually think about who you are and think about what matters to you. Think about what are the key issues that are mattering to you today and that you anticipate will matter to you in a few years, whether that is climate change or student debt or um, management of the pandemic or roads and bridges or transportation or whatever it is, but really think about what are the items that are super important to you? And then look at the candidates and see what they're saying about those issues. So, you know, it's one thing if a candidate says like, I'm pro-education. Well, like, what does that mean? What does it mean to be pro-education? So then you have to think about like, what is it about education that you wanna see changed? And are the words that that candidate is saying or some of the things that they have previously done aligning with that? But there are some um, organizations out there that are dedicated to trying to make your lives a bit easier, um, such as the League of Women Voters or Project Vote Smart or even Rock the Vote. Um, what they do is provide some candidate profiles and some information or send you to links. The other thing I would say is about all of the candidates. This is the time to have conversation with friends and family and say, who are you voting for? <laughs> How'd you get that information? Who are these people? Um, and that one thing that I would also add is the, the, the more local people who are politicians who are running for office, generally the more accessible they are. So, you know, you'd have a tough time probably calling up either of the presidential candidates and having their ear for a moment. But you could find the person who's running for school committee or the person who's running for um, city council and 
talk with them about what they believe in. And their job is to connect with voters, especially new voters. So you will be educated in the process, but that will also be probably very um, empowering for you to have that experience of talking directly with someone who's running. To build off on that as well, a lot of people, especially new voters, overlook the value of local elections and just stick to thoughts on the national election when you see the two presidential candidates. But it, you also have to take into account that all these local elections do impact this just as much and if not even more. That's exactly right. Uh, whether it is the funding for your schools or bike lanes in your community or parks or the air you breathe, the water, the trash collection. I mean, all of this stuff that sometimes we might take for granted, but can be, or where a new school is going to be built, or whether you're getting the resources that you deserve in your community, those are all very local issues. And that is also, I mean, so this is another thing I am actually super um, proud of, is the work that we do at Suffolk University, where we um, teach young people how to run for elective office. We have two, we have a, a semester long class called Ready, Set, Run. And then in the summer, we have a program called Campaign Lab. And our goal is to say, you know, we hear about all of the stuff that's going on at the national level, but we need good people at the most local levels. And that's where young people especially can learn the whole process of how democratic governance works. And, and really have access to it. And, and so all of the things that you do at the most local level are the things that we're doing at the national level, just on a much smaller scale. It is super important and it is a great place to learn and, and, and develop your skills. So uh, a common concern uh, that a lot of voters have when choosing a candidate is you know whether they should vote for what is best for themselves or best for their country. So, um, like knowing this, what kind of advice would you give to someone who is, you know, contemplating this this idea? Oh, that's a <laughs> that's one of those. I don't know that there is a right answer um, uh, because even our interpretation of what is right for our country differs so much based on what might be right for us. Um, I do think that we would all be a bit better off if we really considered um, how we share resources and not essentially hoard resources. Um, and so I think my political philosophy might be a little bit more evident in that, but it, it, an inclusive, um, mentality about what our system of government should do for the common good. And so I think thinking about the common good um, helps us to reflect on what the needs are. And I'll give you um, a specific example um, that is a might not seem obvious at first, but I think relates to it. So one of the things that um, I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, one of the things that Cambridge has done recently is eliminate the honors tracking system at the high school um, with the thinking being that that tracks people into a particular way and leaves some students behind. 
and that a more equitable process would be honors for everyone. And so that if we raise expectations for some, we raise them for all, then everybody has access and opportunity. Uh, that translates into our political process as well, that if we share resources, the hope is that we're all better off in that process. Especially in our current election, you see two candidates with completely polar and opposite personalities. How important is character in regards to political policy? And if so, what, what, what traits of a character make for a good president? Well, I think character is super important um, because it translates to how we think about um, the people that we were elected to serve, how we talk about them, how, the kind of discourse that we create, and the kind of policy priorities that we have. Um, I, I think there's plenty of room for healthy and, uh, and, and, and super important disagreement on critical policy matters uh, that makes policies better through, that, through those disagreements at the end of the day. Um, but having people who are there, um, who are approaching this with a eye toward principled leadership, i.e. there are certain values that are going to guide the, the policy making process and what what's important to you. So for example, you know, is the value of equity the guiding principle or is the value of um, efficiency the guiding principle or or are you going to balance those or are justice, whatever it is. Um, so I, I think that makes for not only better policy outcomes at the end of the day, but it makes for a better policy making process, which brings people together to think through the, the, the common issues. In terms of leadership, you know, I, I think we, we all can look to the leaders in our own individual lives to know what works and what doesn't in leadership. Like, I don't think you need to study leadership for 10 years to figure out that a good, what a good leader it can do for a group. And just think about in your own lives when you have a great teacher and what those qualities in that great teacher are. People who make you feel good about yourself the people who inspire you to be your best, the people who expect a lot out of you and demand a lot out of you and help you learn. I think those are the exact qualities you need in a leader at every single level along, along the way. So we've talked about what teens and voters should look for in a good candidate when it comes to you know, their policy and also their character. So as a teen or any voter, if you find that candidate that you really support, that you agree with what they are doing, what is the best available option for you to go out and help support that candidate? There are lots of things available to you. 
to support a candidate. And I encourage every young person to do basically to do what works for them and for their comfort level, because any of these things are going to help you access the political process. And I say about voting and I'll say about in even every level of participation, it, like they're all quote unquote gateway drugs. Like they all get you in the door. And once you're in the door, you learn the skills. So for a, if the, you're super excited about a candidate, you know, you can volunteer for that candidate. That might mean right now making phone calls for that person. It might mean doing mailers for that person. It might mean um, doing text messages for that person. But what you're also doing, you know, the, the benefit for you is you're learning the political process and you're learning these skills and you're learning how to run a campaign. The other thing you can do is is the kind of persuasion um, techniques that you might be learning in high school that you can practice now on friends and family. Persuade other people to get excited about that candidate. Because when you do that, you are, you are extending beyond yourself. You are controlling a vote beyond your own vote. Or maybe you don't even have the vote yet. Maybe you're not even 18, but you're convincing one, two, three other people. You've just managed to get that person three more votes than they would have had had you not done that. So that's a that's a big deal. And that is kind of, you know, super exciting. The other thing you can do is you can write letters to your local newspaper about that candidate and what that candidate has done. You can post things, nice things on social media about that person and encourage other people. Um, and you can also uh, uh, get involved, sort of find out more about that candidate and, and what that candidate supports and support those causes in honor of the candidate that you also support. So one final question for you. You talked about the work you've done in Massachusetts to try and get these young voters to help out, you know, at polling places. So if anyone across the United States is interested in becoming a poll worker to help, you know, support our elections and support the people trying to exercise their right to vote, what resources are available for them to do this? The most important thing, especially at this late date, is to call your local election office. And I would say call at this point because they're call or email, but call them immediately and say, do you need more poll workers? I'm here to help. But only do this if you can really give the whole day, because at this point, election offices are you know they're strapped they're getting ready for one of the biggest elections they're already probably you know running one of the biggest elections because of early voting they are devoting a lot of resources and they need people who can work from 6 a.m to 9 p.m or later um so if you can only work from like 10 a.m to 12 p.m then i would say there are other options for you on election day and plenty of good stuff to do you can volunteer to help on a campaign. You can volunteer to do election protection. Um, there, there are a lot of things you can do. Um, but if you want to be a poll worker, you have to be dedicated to that and, and call on us. Because the good news this year, I think one of the most underreported stories of the year is when the call went out in July and August and said, we need poll workers, like crisis. Young people stepped up and 
filled it. And now there are some election offices across the country, actually many, that are now like, whoa, we have too many people. That is a great problem to have. That's exactly the kind of problem I would like to see in every election. So uh, to wrap this up, uh, Dr. Cobb, we want to thank you once again uh, so very much uh, for coming on. Um, and we want to thank you as well for coming on to help teens and all voters really uh, better understand and exercise the privilege they've been given. Um, so, you know, before we uh, send off, is there anything you would like to say to the people watching the Gradient Podcast? Well, I, I want to say, first of all, to all of you, bravo for doing this work, because this is one of the ways that you um, get voices out there and, um, and, and help people navigate these challenging times. So thank you for your leadership. Um, and the other thing I want to say is it is so important to vote not only in this election, but in every election. And once you're, once you're in, once you do it once and you develop these skills, they are lifelong skills that will serve your country and, and you are needed and you are necessary. Thank you so much. Thank you so My much. Pleasure. Such profound words from Dr. Cobb. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, and we appreciate your words of wisdom. Now, for our third and final guest for this episode of the Guardian Podcast, we have Dr. Alex Kisar, who will be giving us some insight in the history of voting in the United States. Now, to add on to our amazing list of experts, we are so happy to have American historian, the Matthew W. Sterling Jr. Professor of History and Social Policy at Harvard University, and former ranked junior tennis player, Professor Alex Kisar. How are you today? All right, how are you? I'm great, thanks for asking. So starting off, many people when talking about the issues and the history of voting rights in America look to the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And many people do believe that it was a fix-all solution for all of voting rights issues in America. But as we see today, that's very far from the actual truth. So as it stands, what long-lasting impacts did this act have on American voters? Well, the Voting Rights Act was actually not supposed to or not intended to fix all voting issues. It was targeted um, primarily at ending the large scale exclusion of African-Americans uh, from the electorate in the South. And it, 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 despite various things that have happened with the Voting Rights Act and despite all sorts of problems that still exist, it did succeed uh, in, in doing that. African-Americans are registered to vote in the South and that was the primary goal. Many people today often end up telling themselves that their vote doesn't matter and that there is no point in voting. I think when people say that, they don't take into account the historical fight that had to happen to give everyone this privilege. So what would you say to people who think this way? Well, I'd, I'd say that they, you know, they have to recognize that, uh, yes, one vote is in some sense a drop in the bucket, but if we want to participate in a democracy, if we want to have some responsibility uh, for how our country is governed or how our city is governed or how our you know, locale is governed, um, that voting is a responsibility. And it is true that you know, that many hundreds of thousands, even millions of people have engaged in protests, marched, demonstrated on various things in order to uh, acquire the right, the right to vote. And I think that we, 
we, we, we owe a sign of recognition to those people uh, for their struggles. So for the people that do know the history of voting rights, uh, what uh, would you tell them to be the most conscious of? As in, like, what lesson or message do you believe is the most important to take away uh, from our long and storied history of voting? I think that the most important lesson that people can take away, particularly today, but really at all times, is that the history of the right to vote has not been a history of things always getting better and better and of constant expansion uh, of the suffrage or voting being made easier over time. It has been a history of two steps forward and one step back, or sometimes one step forward and two steps back. It is a history of struggle um, and conflict. Democratic institutions, the history develops or not, uh, the history demonstrates, are not put into place once and for all and just left there. They have to be nurtured and protected. Um, and that is most fundamentally true with the right to vote. You talked about this two steps forward and one step, step back ideology. And I think what really sticks out to me when I think of this is the reconstruction period where we did have a lot of progression towards this equal rights and voting rights opportunities for African-Americans. But at the same time, we did have new forces, new terrorist groups in the South, such as the Ku Klux Klan, who are working to continue to suppress African-Americans. So what patterns do we see then that we can still see happening now? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a very good question. And, and certainly the late 19th century South, the post-Reconstruction South may be, you know, the foremost, most large-scale example of two steps forward, one step back. Indeed, arguably, it was two steps forward and two steps back. Um, and it's also notable that in the same time period, while that was happening in the South with respect to African-Americans, many Northern states were making it more difficult for immigrant workers to vote. So this wasn't, in national terms, this wasn't a purely racial issue. It had class dimensions as well. And in terms of the history and the present, I think that one notable parallel between that late 19th century period and uh, the world we live in today is that in both, in, in both instances, in the late 19th century, um, this was a period when African-Americans were empowered politically for the first time um, in our history, and we had very large levels of immigration. Arguably, you can see a real parallel to the last 50 or 60 years where, thanks to the Voting Rights Act, among other me measures, um, African-Americans have been politically empowered, and we also have uh, relatively large levels of immigration. And I think that these two facts have spawned a counter reaction um, in the United States now, just as they did in the late 19th century. So you've talked about it before, but another thing that people don't know is that the right to vote actually isn't in the constitution. So how do you explain why this, well, can you explain to us why this is and what long-term implications this actually had? Sure, it's a very good question. You know, the right to vote is not in the Constitution. Um, I mean, it's mentioned uh, for the first time in the 14th Amendment and then in the 15th Amendment, but there is no, there is no place in the Constitution where it says 
uh, all adults or all adult citizens or however you want to characterize it have a right to vote. It's simply not there. The reason it's not there is that when the Constitution was written, the breadth of the franchise varied from one state to another. Um, and some states had property requirements, some did not, some had taxpaying requirements, uh, not, not all states had racial restrictions. And when the framers met and they considered having a national franchise requirement and thus a national, uh, and thus a national vote, they, um, they were concerned that any uh, standard that they reached might create objections in uh, some states and among some delegates and might jeopardize ratification of the Constitution. I mean, that, that's the procedural reason why there's no mention of the franchise. It's also the case that uh, in their eyes, or in most of their eyes, it was not clear that voting was a right. It was a peculiar notion. Voting seemed to be a right that only belonged to some people. It didn't belong to women. It didn't belong to blacks, many people thought. Um, and maybe it didn't even belong to people who didn't own property. So then was it a right uh, or was it a privilege? Uh, they never resolved that dispute. I have a quick follow up on that. When you're talking about the fact that our, our founding forefathers like purposely left out the idea of voting in the Constitution, they've, they've cultivated our Constitution to adapt to the moving times. Considering how that was there, they must have had a lot of trust in the future of America because they, 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 made this, they made this country to withstand any adversity and make it in the long term. Do you think our current political landscape fulfilled their idea of what they want our country to be in the future? You know, I, I think that, that when they were writing, they, when, they, when they were putting this together, they, they certainly had hopes that this document and this form of government would prove to be durable. It's probably, in fact, been uh, durable beyond what they what what they might have expected but I th but I think I think we also we have to recognize that the framers of the Constitution who were you know who were very talented men and thoughtful men they were creating a constitution for an 18th a late 18th century world which is so dramatically different from the world that we inhabit today um, so that I you know I, I you know, it's hard. It's hard to even conjecture what they might say um, when they, uh, you know, when they look, if they if they were to look at our political arrangements and institutions today, it would all seem so foreign to them. Now, I'd like to take the conversation to another another talking point. Something that has caused a lot of controversy in American history is the Electoral College. Today, do you see any value in the system? And is it worth for it to stay in place in current America? Well, as you, as, as you know, I've recently published a book about the Electoral College. Um, and my, I think that the Electoral College does have certain benefits. But I think that they are overshadowed by the problems with it, uh, by the defects of the institution. Um, I think that our electoral system should reflect and embrace and embody um, 
fundamental democratic principles, such as all votes count equally. And that's not true in the Electoral College. I think that um, electoral systems should operate in such a way that the person who wins the most votes wins the election. And that's not true with our Electoral College system. Um, so I, th I think that and those are just two of the flaws that one can mention. I mean, a third more operational one is that given uh, the use of winner-take-all by by 48 of 50 states. And by the way, winner-take-all is not in the Constitution. It emerged from the political parties in the 19th century. Um, but given that, I think the Electoral College also deforms our electoral campaigns um, in, in ways that are not healthy to our political culture. You folks are in Florida, right? So you yes. are seeing, you, you are seeing a very active uh, political campaign. And I suspect that it's probably annoyingly true that if you turn on the television, you can't see anything except ads. Um, I live in Massachusetts and every once in a while, there's, a, there's an ad that's actually aimed at New Hampshire, uh, which has the same media market. Um, but, uh, you know, there is, there is no real campaign here and there's no campaign in about three quarters of the states. So I think, um, I think the electoral, the, the electoral college was a last minute compromise by the framers at the constitutional convention. They didn't know how it worked or how it would work. Um, by 1800, it already misfired. There have been more constitutional amendments introduced into Congress to revamp or abolish the Electoral College than on any other subject in U.S. history. And my own view is that it's time that we did something about it, or it's long overdue for us to do something about it. Now, a little bit more on the Electoral College. You brought up the fact that we're in Florida. and it. Florida, we hear it all the time that politicians spend a lot more time in these swing states to campaign because they, at the end of the day, do matter more in the turn of the election. So how do you feel about swing states in the way that they operate and can arguably just shift the balance in our elections? Well, I, th I, I think that that's not a healthy thing. I mean, you know, I mean, it may be, may, may be good for Florida in some ways. You know, there's been, there have been all sorts of studies that have shown the amount of electoral res the resources that are spent, you know, the money that's spent, you know, is in some states and not others. It's also the case that, um, that policy and public policy ends up getting tilted uh, to benefit these swing states, um, you know, for you know, for example, the amount of federal expenditures on roads or for bridge repairs or things. Um, if if you're in a swing state, you have a better chance of getting a hold of those funds uh, than if you're in a state that's reliably uh, red or blue. So you know, I think I I think that. I think that we should probably that we would be happy to do away with the notion of swing or battleground states and have election campaigns that are aimed at all states. So I wanted to ask about this uh, recent um, push by more uh, like radical or extremist political um, groups of this kind of anti-electoralism. Uh, I believe which is mostly spurred by the cynicism that most people feel about you know how the voting process currently works either it be because of 
the electoral college or forms of voter suppression or what have you, where these uh, more extremist groups uh, feel that not voting, purposely not voting, um, will do more for their cause than going out and, I guess, settling for uh, who, who they would deem a less substantial candidate. So does this uh, kind of behavior have any historical precedent? Does, like, does it work? Have we seen it work before? Or is this completely unprecedented in modern times? I think there's been a current of thought um, that disparages voting and that disparages in particular the prospect of, uh, you know, uh, of having to compromise and vote for somebody you don't agree with, but who might have a realistic chance, you know, or risk wasting your vote, uh, casting your vote for somebody that you actually agree with, who's in a, a small, uh, you know, who, who is from a minor party. I think that that current of thought um, has, has been there at many moments in U.S. history, um, but it has never taken great hold, and whether it will, I, I, I somehow doubt that it will take hold uh, in, the, in the current moment either. I mean, another impulse behind that is a desire to delegitimize governments by saying that they don't have popular support. And that, uh, I think that there are people who would like to do that, but I, th I, I do think that they are too small in number to have much impact. When you talk about different sort of factors that have impacts in the elections, I think it's an appropriate time to bring up the role that youth have played in the current elections. Um, I know you're, you're a professor, so you work with a lot of youth, um, specifically in college, and these students are, are, are voting and being more politically active than, than unprecedented measures. Can you give your take on that? Well, it's, you know, this election season has been a very peculiar one for everybody, including uh, for professors and uh, professors and, uh, and other teachers. I mean, I, um, I see my students on a computer. Uh, I'm teaching remotely. There is not the same kind, not the same kinds of interactions that there would be in a, in a normal year. Turning to the question of youth voting, um, it, it, you know, I'm old enough that I've lived through a lot of elections where it was said beforehand, young people are going to turn out in remarkable numbers uh, this year and they're going, to not, they're going to stop being so apathetic and they're going to really have an influence on this election. And then it hasn't happened. That has happened again and again and again. I, I have reason to believe, and maybe it's just hope, that this year will be an exception. The 2018 congressional elections were an exception. There was a remarkable increase in the percentage of young people who voted. And from every indication, that is going to be even more true this year. So more power to you. You know, so we hear it all the time that history repeats itself. And many people have seen blatant patterns of discrimination and oppression in our democracy. Um, I think it's important that people call these things out for what it is. So learning from the past, uh, what signs should people be looking for to point out these injustices? I, I had a colleague who used to say history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Um, but, um, you know, I think that I think that when you, you see something like attempts at voter suppression, 
Um, we need to recognize that this isn't the first time it has happened. It has happened before. It has happened for a reason. Um, and it has happened for reasons that most Americans would not be particularly proud of. And I think that we, you know, I think that that, that we, we always want, my, speaking as a scholar and as a historian, that we want to place these things in historical context and you know, recognize that they that they have never come from our better from our better angels. So the last question we have for you today is that, like you said before, and teens are arguably more aware and more empowered than they've ever been, and they definitely notice that these these injustices that we've been talking about. So, what advice would you give to teens who want to push for change going forward, and what is the best way for them to do that? You know, I, I, I'm not sure that I have great expertise in this, but I would say talk to each other, work with each other, connect up with local organizations and local organizations that might connect to national organizations. Um, if you want, ch change isn't produced uh, by individuals, it's produced by groups of people figuring out ways to collaborate and learn from one another. And that's what I would, that's what I would encourage you to do. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I think that engaging in, in activities to promote civic life, it sounds kind of boring and, uh, you know, the word civics doesn't, doesn't, is not as exciting as football. Uh, but I think it can be just as interesting. Um, and I think that working with other people and working with other people for the sake of still others uh, can be very gratifying. The fact is there are, you know, beyond all the issues about, you know, politics and partisanship, uh, there are a lot of people in this country who are hurting right now. There are a lot of people who, uh, you know, have serious problems. You, you folks probably know this as well as well as I do. But there are, you know, there are dramatic health issues. There's there's issues of you know of poverty, of scarcity, evictions are happening. Um, we all should be trying to, you know, if all of us who are not facing eviction and have enough food on the table. There's something humanly important and in the end as i said gratifying about doing our best to try to uh to try to help those people who are hurting so with that being said thank you so much for coming on and giving us this great opportunity and i truly hope that the people watching at home learn something and can take something away to inspire others now is there anything you'd like to say to the people watching the gradient podcast um, no, I assume that people watching the Grading Podcast are all likely in Florida, and uh, I hope you participate in next week's elections. Although most, are, do you folks vote? Are you folks old enough to vote? Probably not, right? Not, not yet, yet, no. Not yet. Yeah. Not, not yet. Well, look ahead towards uh, towards the next election, and to your colleagues, just um, pay attention to what's going on. Recognize that we're all in this together, and... Um, and I and I wish you I wish you all well. And I know since I know what school you come from, I know you I know that you come from a school with a particular history, and you and you young people live in a particular history. And I can only wish you the best in trying to uh, 
successfully contend with that. Thank you so much. This has been part one of the two-part election special of the Gradient Podcast. Stay tuned to see their interviews for three more incredible guests. That's right, Armand. We have so much planned for this, the rest of this episode and so much planned for the future. Uh, we'd like to give a quick thank you to anyone watching us on any of our platforms. We'd really do appreciate it if you follow and give us a subscribe and anything really does help. Another quick thank you to all the people who have helped share our podcast and really help spread the message and help spread and share this empowerment that we're trying to give to teens all across the globe. And of course, the best way to keep track of the release of part two of this very special Gradient election episode is, of course, to follow us on our socials. So go ahead and follow us on Instagram at Gradient Podcast, on our Twitter at Gradient Podcast. Make sure to subscribe uh, to our YouTube channel. Anything you can do to make sure that you are one of the first to view part two of this very special uh, Gradient election episode. And some final thoughts before we head off. Please, if you're eligible, do remember to vote and make an effort to do so. Your vote does matter, and it does make an impact on the future of the United States of America. Again, I think the biggest takeaway from this episode and the next episode to come is that you do have the power to create change with your vote. And it is your right and your responsibility that you use that power wisely and exercise your right to vote. If you have any questions or concerns, we there are so many great resources available to you. And if you're watching us on YouTube, those links are available in the description. Thank you so much for watching. Yeah, with all that said... This has been episode nine and part one of the Gradient Election Special. As always, I'm Evan. I'm Jaden. And I'm Armand. Stay tuned. Thanks for watching and make sure to vote.